the fact that we aren't stumbling around in an inconsolable state of sobbing awe is appalling. Welcome to Beyond Religion, a podcast about unconfined spirituality. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lott. We're about halfway through season one, and today I offer this solo episode about sober consciousness. I'll be back to conversations next week, but thought I'd wax confessional on this Easter Sunday, the end of a convergence weekend when Ramadan, Passover, and Holy Week, and even a full moon all lined up. As always, we are on a journey, and I hope you'll join me as we consider together spirituality beyond religion. Ruts are so easy to get into. Wake up, get coffee, throw on clothes, make sure kids have done the same, hop in the car, turn on NPR, drive 20 to 45 minutes, depending on which kid I'm taking, drop kid at school, squeeze in all the work I can do, go pick up a kid, drive 45 to 60 minutes, because 4 p.m. traffic across town is just gross, do a little more work, maybe walk the dog, eat dinner, go to bed, repeat. And when you're living in a rut, it's a lot like sleepwalking or autopilot. It can be half a life and not a whole one because you're just going through it every day. And the it is a grind. Our teenagers feel it too. That became so painfully obvious during and after pandemic life. When we had a year of kids getting more sleep, moving freely during the day, finding a natural pace and rhythm, and then all feeling so yanked back into the fixed schedule of workaday culture. As easy as it would be to make this a rant about the evil side of capitalism or the erasure of the middle class or five Americans holding as much or more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans combined, that's not where I'm going today. For just over 200 days, I have been breaking out of a rut pushing against the lulling whispers of culture that try to convince us half a life is good enough. I've been waking up to myself and my people almost as if for the first time. Sharon Salzberg says we can always begin again. I know she's talking about meditation in the most literal sense because That's the kind of thing she's known for, her brilliant Buddhist teachings, being a leading voice in meditation and mindfulness. I like her because she's not saccharine. Everything she says comes with a crusty, native New Yorker exterior, and that makes me trust her all the more. Saying we can always begin again is an approach to anything and everything. It's about living with graciousness and self-compassion. Like the story Cynthia Bourjol tells, Father Thomas Keating suggested sitting and centering prayer for 20 minutes twice a day. Simply put, in centering prayer, you meditate by letting go of one thought after another. That can certainly be our subjective experience of the practice. And this is exactly the frustration expressed by an early practitioner. 
and one of the very earliest training workshops led by Keating himself, a nun, tried out her first 20-minute taste of centering prayer and then lamented, Oh, Father Thomas, I'm such a failure at this prayer. In 20 minutes, I've had 10,000 thoughts. How lovely, repeated Keating without missing a beat. 10,000 opportunities to return to God. God, the breath, our lives. We can always begin again. And sometimes those moments aren't always when or how we'd expect them to arrive. In September of last year, I added Wilbutrin to my daily cocktail of meds, high blood pressure, generalized anxiety, and a dash of depression. All fodder for future episodes, I'm sure. I'm the sort of person who reads all the material that comes with a new prescription, and I want to cross-reference it against the other meds I'm taking. I really don't like that I'm taking four pills a day, even though my doctor tells me that's hardly anything, and I don't want to get stuck in the standard there's a pill for that mindset. But also, I can testify meds help, and isn't modern medicine a gift, albeit sometimes a complicated one? Well, it turns out Wellbutrin comes with a risk of seizures, and drinking alcohol increases the odds of having a seizure. Given the timing of this new med, my 45th birthday, ending a very lush and eye-opening sabbatical, I decided it was the moment to heed that wisdom. And I used that as an opportunity to stop drinking. Because it was more important for me to get my brain chemistry sorted out than to wind down with wine each day. And I really, selfishly, would like to keep the possibility of a seizure as low as possible. But really quickly, setting down alcohol felt like more than just giving meds a fighting chance. It was more than just giving my brain and body some balance. I started to realize how much alcohol has, for me, been part of the quicksand that keeps me living in the rut. Booze is in every single part of our communal life, especially living in New Orleans. One of our very first family events after moving here was a fun run and 5K in Audubon Park called the Gator Run. It took place at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Our kids were pre-K and third grade at the time. Some of the kids ran one lap around the park, others ran a mile, and then the full run was the 5K. Either way, it was a pretty short event. When the Gator Run was over, we all descended on trays of jambalaya and a freshly tapped keg of beer at like 9.30 in the morning on a Saturday. I'll admit, it was pretty cute. We thought, this is great. What a life. Live oak trees, an amazing park, streetcars rumbling by, our kids growing up in the laissez-faire culture of this old European city. Well, old by American standards. The Gator Dad's group asks if you want a beer at 9.30 in the morning, and the only response is, absolutely I do. Fast forward nine years and newly alcohol-free, and I realize how much this story plays out everywhere all the time. How routinely I've been the one setting up the mimosas and the Bloody Marys or making sure there's plenty of chilled wine for a two o'clock pool party. I'm not attaching moral judgment to any of this at all, so please don't hear it that way. I'm not even necessarily saying I'll never, ever partake again. Though I know in sober communities, a statement like that is anathema. But for now, for today, I have consciously chosen to step away from drinking culture and into sobriety because it feels like a step toward living a whole life. Holly Whitaker, author of the super popular book, Quit Like a Woman, The Radical Choice to Not Drink in a Culture Obsessed with Alcohol, 
says, Alcohol is the only drug in the world where when you stop taking it, you are seen as having a disease. Yet another binary I hope we're deconstructing right now, only this time the assumption is either you can handle your booze and you're normal, or you have a big fat drinking problem. And I've allowed those assumptions to land on me, even if I'm not sure they actually fit, because I've chosen to be very out loud in sharing this conscious sobriety. It means I've gotten comments from friends like, I had no idea you were overdoing it so much. Or people who have very quietly been in recovery for years who tell me about how great AA has been for them and they offer to go to meetings with me. I'm not opposed to going to some meetings, actually. I like the idea of being surrounded by people who are all committed to sobriety, but The language of alcoholic just doesn't feel like it fits. In part, it maintains the notion that alcohol culture is good for some and not good for others. What I'm really aware of right now is how drinking culture is just one of the many, many ways we numb ourselves to the world, to our lives, to the inner workings of our minds and bodies. Alcohol is a multi-billion dollar industry that normalizes our numbness. And I don't want to be numb anymore. I don't want to ignore or deny thoughts and emotions and complicated stuff that is either in me or around me. So if the binary of healthy drinker versus alcoholic helps someone else put me in a category, fine. I don't want to get lost in semantics. And I also want to pay attention to my own judgment and resistance of the label alcoholic. What's that about? I don't know. It doesn't feel resonant to me, that word. It doesn't feel like what I'm experiencing. But also, I got to be honest, not drinking is sometimes really hard. And that is where I want to be awake. Why is it hard? When is it hard? What's that all about? What am I feeling beneath the awareness of discomfort and ache? What is that restlessness deep within me? Holly Whitaker is an author, we know, and she's also the host of a short-run podcast called Quitted. It's a podcast about quitting, and she co-hosted it with artist and creative Emily McDowell. They did 21 episodes, and I highly recommend it for anyone who imagines that their life might be different from what it has always been. Anyone who feels like they're in a hamster wheel and wants to get out. Anyone who has toyed around with life changing. Anyone who wants to question what it is they've always known. Anyway, in Holly's book, she obviously talks about quitting alcohol and discovering the full range of life experiences without the crutch of a bottle of Pinot Grigio by her side. She writes, sobriety, if it is anything, is paying attention, seeing the wonder and the beauty around us that we so easily sprint by on our way to the next thing. And this is more than fun. This is actually living. Now that resonates. If I remove this crutch that momentarily makes me feel less anxious, though science proves alcohol actually makes you way more anxious than not drinking, a really great piece of information for someone with generalized anxiety disorder. This tool that helps me signal the day is done, and now I can relax and let go. This social lubricant that helps me think maybe I'm a damn delight to be around. If I remove that crutch, then who am I? And what what do I do with my hands? And how do I just sit and chat and be and pass an evening 
or a Mardi Gras day, or a boat ride in the sunshine, or a long football game, or whatever it is that our culture tells us, let's drink to that. Sometimes it's really super easy not to drink, and I'm not even thinking about it, but there have been a lot of moments over the past six and a half months that were embarrassingly hard. I say embarrassing because I've been shocked by how difficult breathing through my emotions in a tough moment has felt. All that woo-woo stuff about noticing the thoughts but not being attached to the thoughts and naming the emotions without overly identifying with the emotions. I feel anxious, but I am not anxiety. Be curious and observe, whatever, stuff like that. I'm, I'm doing the work. I'm going to therapy regularly. I'm showing up. I'm practicing. And often that is not fun. But I also want to know in my big old monkey brain why this is hard and why I feel so much better without any trace amounts of ethanol in my system. I started listening to Jill Teets' podcast, Sober Powered, and even joined her online community for a while. She has a degree in biochemistry and started approaching drinking culture from the science of the body and brain. What happens when we have a drink or two or five or whatever your regular might be? What does the brain release in that moment and then in the next day? And what happens when we stop drinking? I had heard the term anxiety becoming more anxious the day after consuming at least two units of alcohol. That's two glasses of wine, two beers, something like that. But with Jill's help, I learned that today's momentary hit of dopamine and endorphins, we're talking 30 to 45 minutes of feeling pretty good in your body, lead to tomorrow's dynorphin overload, which actually makes you more anxious and more depressed. So add that to the rut of grind culture and you see how it's really easy to get home from a stressful day. Pour a drink, want another one or two, again, whatever your habit might be. And turns out the science supports the woo-woo hunch that alcohol is at odds with living a conscious life. Mindful, aware, awake to the full range of human experience. You cannot numb and feel at the same time. That seems so obvious, right? Well, here I am over 200 days into conscious sobriety and very much still figuring these things out about myself and about our culture. I'm landing on the language of conscious sobriety because it feels very much like something I'm choosing every day, sometimes even more than once a day. And it's a commitment to the expansion of my own consciousness. In Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield write, it is said that soon after his enlightenment, the Buddha passed a man on the road who was struck by the extraordinary radiance and peacefulness of his presence. The man stopped and asked, my friend, what are you? Are you a celestial being or a god? No, said the Buddha. Well, then aren't you some sort of magician or wizard? Again, the Buddha answered, no. Are you a man? No. Well, my friend, what are you then? And the Buddha replied, I am awake. <sighs> That's what the past six months have felt like. Waking up and realizing I didn't even know I was asleep. And I'm somebody who loves a nap. I love a nap 
big time. Weighted blanket, ceiling fan, a little bit of steady rain, and I am tucked in immediately. There are those good, luscious naps when you're so absolutely dead to the world when you wake up that you don't know what time it is, what day it is, what city you're in, what room you're in. In those first groggy seconds, you take assessment. I'm in my bed. This is my bedroom. I'm at home. I am Elizabeth. It is still Sunday. It's like spirit and mind and body are all reconnecting after having taken a little break from one another. And they're coming back into alignment as you awaken. Same. Same, same, same is what these six months have been. There are times when choosing sobriety is just practical and is becoming as much a part of my life as when someone has gone gluten-free or vegan. But there are other times when choosing to be sober feels deeply spiritual. I'm giving myself to a practice of breath and awareness in only this moment. And the invitations to numb are everywhere. All the messaging, every commercial, every show and movie, especially comments from friends who enjoy and rely on these escape tools. You're not even taking gummies, not even some CBD, not even just a glass of champagne. I, I sometimes feel like I've broken this social pact. We're all supposed to celebrate and lament and delight and rest and order our days and our lives around alcohol. And to ask why do we do that? Somehow broke a spell that I didn't even realize I was under. I guess that's because good spells work that way. You aren't aware of them. For me, the binary language of healthy drinker versus alcoholic isn't helpful because it tricks most of us into thinking that drinking can be and is a healthy activity. Again, I'm not judging here. Please don't get me wrong. I freaking love a cheese board with some white wine or a really dry rosé, and I miss it a lot. Uh, The ritual of selecting and chilling and opening the bottle, the beauty of a great label, the leisurely pace of wine and cheese on the patio with my love and some fantastic friends. (sighs) It's elegant and romantic and feels desperately grown up. So the challenge of conscious sobriety has been, can I access that part of myself without alcohol? Can I access that moment, that camaraderie, that total sinking into my body, that ease of being with sparkling water instead of Prosecco? Holly Whitaker suggests we ask ourselves some other questions about alcohol besides the usual Am I overdoing it line of thinking? Instead, she asks, is alcohol getting in the way of my happiness, my life, my self-esteem? Is it getting in the way of my dreams or maybe just not working for me? Does it cost more than it gives? Does it shrink more than it expands? Does it cut pieces out of me I can't reclaim? Does it make me hate myself even just a little bit? I'll add my own to hers. Does alcohol serve my highest, best self? Does alcohol move me closer to being the fullness of who I suspect I was created to be? Or, just as it slows down my brain and coordination and inhibitions, does alcohol distract me from awareness and rising 
and growing like a plant toward the light. I want to live consciously. I want to grow toward the light. The Buddha said, I am awake. Can I say that too? It's Easter Sunday for most of the Christian world. Our Orthodox friends will celebrate next week. And one of the stories we Christian or Christian-ish people visit over this weekend is the one of Jesus taking his disciples with him to the Garden of Gethsemane and pleading with them to watch and stay awake as he prayed. Ronald Rollheiser writes, the implication of this request is that the disciples are about to learn something. A lesson is about to be taught. But as we know, they didn't stay awake. They fell asleep, not because the hour was late and they were tired after a long day, nor even because of the wine they'd drunk at dinner. They fell asleep, Luke says, out of sheer sorrow. They fell asleep because they were disconsolate, disappointed, confused, depressed. And because of that sleep, they missed the lesson they were supposed to learn from watching Jesus in his prayer. What was that lesson, Rollheiser asks? What the disciples were supposed to see and grasp in the Garden of Gethsemane was the intrinsic connection between suffering and transformation and the necessity in that process of being willing to carry tension disappointment, and unfairness without giving into despair, bitterness, recrimination, and the urge to give back in kind. He continues, we fall asleep out of sorrow whenever we become so confused and overwhelmed by some kind of disappointment that we begin to act out of hostility rather than love, paranoia rather than trust, despair rather than hope. We fall asleep out of sorrow whenever we sell short what's highest in us because of the bitterness of the moment. And this is one of perennial temptations we have in life to fall asleep out of sorrow. Hear that again from Rollheiser. We fall asleep out of sorrow whenever we sell short what is highest in us. On this Sunday, marked as one of resurrection by one-third of the planet, hear me saying we can always begin again. Resurrection of our lives, our minds, our relationships, even at the cellular level of our bodies, it is absolutely possible today. I know I let myself go numb and I don't want to go back. I want to continue every day choosing to be awake. Like Jen Sincero writes, we're on a planet that somehow knows how to rotate on its axis and follow a defined path while it hurtles through space. Our hearts beat, we can see. We have love, laughter, language, living rooms, computers, compassion, cars, fire, fingernails, flowers, music, medicine, mountains, muffins. We live in a limitless universe overflowing with miracles. The fact that we aren't stumbling around in an inconsolable state of sobbing awe is appalling. The universe must be like, what more do I have to do to wake these bitches up? I'm waking up. I am awake. If you're with me, I'd love to hear from you. Reach out. Reach out on Instagram. 
You can also find me on Twitter and even Facebook. I'll make sure those links are all in the show notes for today. And I'll be sure to link to some of the authors I've quoted today too. If any of my story connects you more to yours, then I'm deeply grateful. Let's wake up. Let's give ourselves to some conscious living. I'm excited to see what unfolds as more and more of us are 100% here for it. Thanks for listening, friends. Have a lovely week.